Well, we go Second Corinthians this morning. So if you'd open with me to chapter 5, we'll be reading from there in just a minute. In these first chapters, Paul has been talking about a number of different subjects. And one of the important ones has been living our lives for God in spite of the fact that we're facing persecution, trials, troubles, and de- even death. And to that end, he's given us some encouragements to not lose heart, to continue to do the work of the Lord and continue to live the Christian life in spite of the hardships and the temptations and the troubles. And to that end, last time we looked at how we do not lose heart, even though we're wasting away, we have the promise of glory. And so I want to read through that section again and then continue on to this week's material. So we'll start in chapter 4 at verse 16 to set the context better. So Second Corinthians chapter four sixteen. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, but burdened, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the encouragements we receive to, to not lose hope, to put our hope and trust in you and in the promises you have made. And as we look at yet another promise here, the promise of a new heavenly body. Pray, Lord, that it would encourage our hearts to be faithful, to endure persecution, to endure temptation to sin and seek to be holy, to endure to lead a godly life and endure the trials of this life, knowing the future that you have promised. And pray your blessing as we now consider these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the things of the world we learned last time were things that are seen, and they are all transient. They come and they go. There's a flower fades and the grass withers, so goes the life of man. But all the things that we have, here today, gone tomorrow. You buy a really nice car, and ten years later, it's a struggle to keep it on the road. Here fit and healthy and lean and exercise and can do anything when you're 20. But by the time you're 60, eh, not so much. And all of that comes and all of that goes. And that's why here he turns from telling us that for all the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He, he focuses on one specific thing now. Thing that is currently seen, our physical body wasting away over time rotting, filled with problems. And he focuses now our hearts and our attention on what is unseen, that new body that we do not know. So starting off in verse 1, 
We know that we have a tent that is our earthly home. When it is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This tent, this earthly home, which is to say our our current body, our life, and really all of our circumstances, is what he's bringing our attention to first. Now, in there are three words I want to consider here in the Greek. The first one, I won't bother giving you the words, that translates as tent, is only used in this passage in the New Testament. In Greek, they have um, gender for words. It doesn't mean the same as a biological gender, but it separates words into groups so that how they're broken down and used. This word is neuter, but there's also a feminine version of this word, which is used everywhere else for a tent or a tabernacle, for the place where the Lord is worshipped. That word is used for all those. This word is slightly different, and it's the, well, it's the same word with a different gender. It's only used right here in the New Testament. Elsewhere in Greek literature, it can be used for a dead body. Particularly, even in Greek philosophy, a body without the soul. You know, somebody who has died. And so that's the meaning. The tent here is not a standard tent you live in. It can mean that, but its meaning is more than that. The second word, translated earthly or terrestrial, has to do with things that are of this world, physically as well as spiritually, the things of this life. And the third one is the common word for house, but it can also be used, remember, for the property of the house, the the estate, if you will. So the idea here is not the tabernacle where God is worshipped, which the King James translates the tabernacle, which can be confusing, but meaning the tent of our body, the physical body which houses the soul, and potentially all the things associated with that, all the things of this life that we deal with and have. And so it's our earthly body. It was made by God, but remember how it was made. This is important in understanding the passage, I think. When the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the earth from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Then the man became a living creature, Genesis 2.7. So he was made to dust, made of dust. And when man sins and his, the curse is pronounced, God says to Adam, Now because you have listened to the voice of your wife and feet of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles you sh- shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis three seventeen through 19 And so God is emphasizing in the creation narrative that we are made from dust by him, and we will return to dust. I remember somebody telling me that a Christian couldn't be cremated, and they asked why, if we're formed from dust and we're going to return to dust, what difference does it make? But apparently the Roman Catholic Church digging up saints and burning them at the stake and scattering their ashes so that they couldn't be resurrected you know, hurts people's thinking. And, of course, the pagan belief that your soul can't be free unless your body is cremated. Or uh, There's one Indian philosophy that says unless it's been eaten by crows or vultures and they put them on big towers, they spread out the dead people to be eaten. Uh, Our soul and our body are separated when we die. Uh, We don't have to worry about those things. And the body can be resurrected, even if it's 6,000 years ago, it turned to dust and it was lost. It was scattered back into the earth by the flood. We can still get our body back by God. He has that power. We don't need to worry about those things. Now, remember also about the curse on the ground, the pain and the toil, the frustration that goes with it. Abraham, by faith, really understood this. Remember when he was questioning God about Sodom, will you destroy it for 50 people? It says in verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Uh, Genesis eighteen twenty-three. 
And after the, he goes through the first 50, in, Abraham answers back to God in verse 27. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Now, he understood his place before God as a creature created by God, formed from the dust of the earth. Uh, people who get sucked into the religion of evolution, who call themselves Christians, are really missing out on what God is trying to tell us by what he did. We are dust and ashes. That is our right before him. He is eternal and unchangeable in his being. We are formed by dust and will return to dust. And we need to understand our place. And couple of th- the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 7 of Second Corinthians, Paul said that we have this treasure, referring to the gospel ministry and the gospel itself, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. So he understands and is comparing himself, I am dirt, I am dust, I am formed from the dust of the earth, that is man's origin, I am just a jar of clay holding in this greatest treasure the universe creation has ever known, the gospel. And this is set, in contrast, this this earthly body is set in opposition to the heavenly one, the heavenly body, I'm going to call it, the one created by God that is in heaven. And in his previous letter, Paul had written in great detail to them about the resurrection body. And so I think we need to remember what he wrote back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to read a fairly long section because... You know, what are we hoping in? If this body is running and going to die, if this body may be killed by persecutors, if this body is going to die due to health problems, if this body is suffering, what am I hoping for? This life? No, right? The next life, eternity. What will my new body be like? That's something people think about. I remember, well, I remember meeting a lot of people over the years who didn't have confidence in that, even though they said they were Christians. And Paul here is trying to give us that confidence. We have that hope. We're living not for this life and this body and the things of this world, which are all transient, he said right in the last chapter, but for the things that are heavenly, the things that are eternal, the things that will last, the things that are perfect. So here's what he says about the body, the new body, starting in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. Someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I want to know. Don't you want to know? He says, you foolish person. Uh What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives the body he has chosen to each kind its seed, its own body, Not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, for birds, for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory in the sun and another glory in the moon and another in the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Remember, we've talked about this before, the heavenly body is certainly much more glorious than the earthly body, but the earthly body is still glorious. God created it, and God said it was very good, and God blesses it with many great things. And so he's making a contrast. There are many different kinds of bodies, and so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is shown is perishable. This body is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is is dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is shut sown in weakness, but raised in power. It is sown a natural body and is raised a spiritual body, so we know more about our body to come. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. For thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then comes the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. We're speaking about Adam and Jesus here. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. 
just as we have become the image of the man of dust, so also we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable. This mortal body was put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immorality, then shall come to pass what is written, Death shall is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is there your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So think about what this has to say about our body to come. You know, our hope, if it is only in this life, we're of all men most miserable, not just because we suffer for Christ, but even for the pagan, if all they have hope of is now, they suffer decay. They suffer harassment, persecutions for sin. They suffer illness. They suffer all the things that are normal in this life. They suffered for their own sin, not for Christ, but it's unhelpful, it's painful. And so the believer can look forward to their new body to come. Now, the unbeliever also has a new body, which isn't talked about here, but they will be raised from the dead. Their body will be cast into hell where they will suffer both physically and spiritually. But what is our glorious body? Well, our earthly body is dust flesh and blood. It's physical, it's perishable, it's mortal, it's dishonorable, it's weak, both physically and spiritually. It came from the dust and will return to the dust in due time. It is not something to be treasured beyond Christ because we have the promise of that new body. What is the new body? Well, sharp contrast to the other. It is a spiritual body. It is spiritually pure. It is an honorable body. It is imperishable, immortal, glorious. Think about that. It will never suffer the pangs of age. It will never suffer decay. It will never suffer sickness or injuries or problems because it has been made immortal, imperishable, and glorious. Now, you may have noticed in here what he's talking about this transition from one to the other is, for most of us, death. It's given to all men to die once and after that to face the judgment. Now, he mentions in the First Corinthians 15 passage that not everyone dies. There will be Christians alive when Christ returns, and they will be raised into the air and transformed. So just as we get our resurrection new body from a body that may no longer be distinct in the world— their earthly body will be transformed into the spiritual heavenly body. But we are talking about death. <clears throat> Remember how unbelievers probably think about death. Even some believers, they find it terrifying. What happens? There's some darkness, some fear of what's going to happen next. In Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon starts off with, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of evil come and the years draw near, of which you say, I have no pleasure in them. This Ecclesiastes 12.1. And he goes on then to talk about how the body fails, how life grinds down from we have hope and we can do anything to we're sitting alone eating soup because our teeth are rotted unable to see well, unable to function, unable to do what we used to do. I remember reading, listening to a video recently of you know, one of the complaints was, you know, I'm 60 years old, but I can't play with my grandchildren. I can't go out fishing. I can't do any of the things I want to do in my life. Solomon talks about all of that in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. Lord willing, we'll get to it one day. But he finally comes to his conclusion, the dust returns to the as the dust returns to the earth, so the spirit, so the man, seeking man, so the spirit returns to God who gave it. 
We all understand this, right? We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death, 6.23. Appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Jesus will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25.41. It's a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Mark 9.48. And the smoke from their torment will grow up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night, Revelation 14, 11. You know, man basically knows this. God has built it into us. That's where the fear of death really comes from. It's not the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of judgment. Now, men try to sear their conscience and try to avoid thinking about it, and some men are pretty good at that. Their conscience is so seared and their delusions are so strong that they believe in what they will get. Islam teaches that if you die fighting an infidel, a Christian in particular, you'll get seven virgins to rape and molest for all eternity in paradise. And so they're willing to die, and that's why they win most of their wars. If I die this way, I have a great reward. And they're so seared in their conscience and deluded in their faith that they believe in that. But most people fear death. But for the Christian... We need to understand death is the normal transition from this world and this life and this body to ultimately the new heaven, the new earth, the new body, which are all glorious, which are immortal, which are pure spiritually, where there is no troubles awaiting us. And if we understand that death is that transition, then death is not the fearful thing. Death is not a terror to keep us awake at night. Death is a natural event. And it's what brings me into the presence of the Lord directly. It's what brings me to the next stage of my existence. It's what prepares me for that eternal glory, that new heaven, that new earth, that new body, that glorious body that will not have the pains and the miseries and the sufferings I have in this life. And so we have hope. Think about how John described this this new life in Revelation 21. He said, I saw the new heaven, the new earth, for which the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice on the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain anymore for the former things that passed away. Revelations 21, 1-4. Now, understand that is where our new body is going to exist in a new world where everything is right, where everything is good, where God himself will be with us forever as our God. All the things a believer could ever hope for. Now it goes on in verse 2 through 4 to talk about this current body, this current life. We groan with longing for eternal life. That's an amazing statement, but it's true, isn't it? We groan. Sometimes literally when we get up in the morning, oh, oh, my back, oh, my knee, oh, my feet, oh, my head. We groan. But more than that, you know, as when we face things like sickness, when we face things like, you know, pain from injuries, when we face disabilities of all kinds, we, we groan without, oh, this is not good. I can't do what I should do. I can't do what I want to do. I can't do what I enjoy doing. We groan from all of those things. God's judgment on this world, that, go back and think about what we just read. You know, we plant crops and tend to get it food. What happens? You know, if you've ever had a garden, no matter how careful you are, what do you grow? More weeds than food. Some of them hurt your fingers when you pull them out, give you a rash, depending on where you live in the country, where you live in the world. 
I remember reading somebody saying they, in their garden, if they don't pull the weeds out pretty much every day, and where they are, they get more weeds by like tenfold than the growth of their actual plants. Why? Well, thorns and thistles and the sweat of our brow is what was promised as part of the punishment for our sin. Our efforts get rewarded. Yes, we have food to eat. But the hardships to get those rewards are great. And let's face it, our efforts are frustrated at every turn. Everything we do to have a good, comfortable, happy life is frustrated. It's frustrated by this cursed world. It's frustrated by evil people in the world. And let's be honest, it's frustrated by our own sin. It's very difficult in this world, and so we groaned. God, ah, disease in all my plants. I remember the first garden I planted in my own home. I had all the seeds started everywhere, seeds to plant. And I came down one morning and looked at them, and there was white fur at the base of every single seed league in all of my trays. And I'm like, ah, they all died. Yeah, Just this natural life in this natural world, we face that frustration all the time. We also grow, as I mentioned earlier, due to our sickness and infirmities. Cancer, autoimmune diseases, neurological disorders, all the infirmities and pains of aging, all of the pain from injuries and suffering makes us groan. And for the Christian, that makes us look forward to that incorruptible body. It can't have those sicknesses. It can't have those diseases. There won't be that pain. There won't be that misery. There won't be that frustration and my body doesn't do what I need it to do. And so we look forward to that great, with great joy and great happiness because that's what we want. You know, we've joked before, getting old isn't for the faint of heart, but life in general is hard. It makes us groan. And so we look forward to the day when we will have that new glorified body that doesn't have these problems. But as he mentions here in our passage, we don't want to be naked. We don't want to be unclothed. What he's referring to there is our body dead and our soul separated from our body. Uh, some pagans fantasize that we're nothing but electrons. And when the electrons in the brain stop firing, we're dead. They call it brain death. But to them, we cease to exist at that point. That's where I used to be as an atheist. You stop and disappear. And thus, suicide actually becomes a viable alternative because you end your pain and your suffering. That's why people usually kill themselves. They don't want to suffer, whether it be an embarrassment or physically. And emotionally or physically, they don't want to suffer anymore, so they they want to die and end it all, and then it's done. But they're poor, deluded fools. After they've murdered themselves, they're going to face, ju- face God and face the judgment. The believer knows that after our body, after our death, our body will rest in the earth until the resurrection. We also know, if we're a real believer, that our soul is made perfect and goes to be with God. It has to be made perfect first because obviously a sinner cannot stand in the presence of God, so it's purified of all that corruption that was once there. And we have then a a soul separated from the body, and we are considered to be, in this passage, naked in the sense of we don't have a body anymore. Now, I want to take a moment to remind ourselves that there is a state between our current corrupt physical body that's decaying and suffering and groaning and this eternal, immortal, incorruptible body that we're going to come. There's time in between. For Abel, that time has been over 6,000 years already. There are some people, though, who say, no, the, the, the the soul goes to sleep when it's separated from the body and doesn't have any knowledge or any memory of that. Uh, even some pseudo-Christian groups claim that. 
But that's really contrary to Scripture, and I want to remind ourselves there is a state in between the old corrupt, failing body and the new heavenly body to come that Paul is mentioning here. Remember Jesus in his story about the rich man and Lazarus. Poor man, Lazarus, died and was carried to the, by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his, the tip of his finger in cool water and cool my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. I remember we said where their flame never dies, is never quenched. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus likewise bad things, and now he is comforted here while you are in anguish. So these souls, apart from their bodies, they've died, are conscious and aware, and they've gone on to their eternal reward, one to eternal suffering, the other to the comfort, even though they have no body. Our body does not, a body sleeps in the grave and is called sleep sometimes, but our soul is not sleeping, it is aware. We see that also in the glimpse of heaven that we, John gives us from Revelation 6, 9 to 11. And when he opened the fifth seal, John saw into the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? For these are all those who have died for the testimony, the martyrs. <clears throat> and they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer till the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were killed as they themselves had been. And don't forget Jesus' promise to the thief on the cross. The thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it would be an empty promise if he said that to our men, he was not with him today. He would be with him asleep until the resurrection. No, he's going to be aware and conscious and going to receive the comfort and the reward that is promised him with Jesus being there. Now, you might ask, what is paradise here? Is that heaven? Well, yes. Paul says later in the book, we, we think most likely he's speaking about himself, but in a humble regard the way Jews often did, speaking of himself in the third person. In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 2-4, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And that other this man was caught up to paradise. And whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, the first heaven is generally understood to be the atmosphere where the birds fly, the second heaven where the stars live, outer space, and the third heaven where God and his angels have this spiritual realm. Uh, not necessarily, as some people thought, connected. If you go far enough beyond the space, you'll run into heaven. No. I remember the, um, the first man in space, a cosmonaut from the Soviet Union, announced mockingly that he was in outer space, in heaven, and nobody, no sign of God anywhere. <laughs> well, he's in the wrong heaven. So anyway, Jesus is saying, you'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in the spiritual realm of heaven where God and the angels and all of the saints live, all of the saints who have gone on to glory. And that's important. Now, this verse is also very useful for dealing with another heresy in the church, and that is what the modern-day Pentecostals and Charismatics, their, their prophets and prophetesses, are teaching. They say that when Jesus died, he actually didn't go to heaven. He went to hell for three days to be punished by Satan and tormented by Satan so that he could buy us from the devil. Now, Jesus says, no. I mean, there, there are so many things wrong with that, I want to lose my breakfast here. But Jesus says, no, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus went to heaven when he died. Satan had no claim over him. The reason this is most disgusting 
is because we are reconciled with God by Jesus taking the full wrath of God due for our sin upon himself on the cross. And they are emptying the cross of its glory and saying, no, Jesus saved us in hell by letting Satan punish him and hurt him and wound him, and that allowed him to be, us to be bought. And so they're, they're totally destroying the cross. They're, they're totally destroying salvation as it is presented in Scripture. And so we need to be aware of that and be careful about that. So our, our being resurrected and having these heavenly bodies, the point here is that it's better than being unclothed, than being naked, than being without a body. It's better to have a body, a perfect body, but also it's better to be with the Lord than be in this current body. Not just because this current body is cursed, but because being with the Lord is far better. Paul speaks of that in Philippians. And, well, in the passage we read in a couple more in the next section, but I'll skip that for now. He speaks of this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 to 24, when he says, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Dying is better than being alive in Paul's mind, and it should be in all believers' mind. He says, If I live, live in the flesh and mean fruitful labor for me, which, but which yet I cannot choose. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Why? My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So it is better to be in the presence of Christ without our body than to be in this world separated from Christ. Physically, Christ is always with us and in us, and the Spirit lives in us. But we're, in a sense, separated in that we don't have direct communication. We don't see him face to face. We don't hear him. We don't see his glory in the same way that we would in his physical presence, well, spiritual presence in heaven. And so Paul says, it is better by far to be unclothed with Christ than clothed in this world but it is better by far than that to be in eternity where God will live with us and we'll have our body back, a new resurrected body, our perfect, holy, incorruptible, imperishable body, and yet still be in the presence of God. And this is an important thing for us to understand by faith. That he talks about, and we've already read the verse, how... We walk by faith, not by sight. We, we put our hope in the things that are unseen, not in the things that are seen, because the things that are seen are perishing, and the things that are unseen are eternal. And so this new body and this new life and this eternity that is waiting for us is the thing we should hope for. And that's why in these verses that we just read, we groan in this current tent, we groan, but we long to put on our heavenly body. Paul says in Romans 8, 18 through 25, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God and the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of the will of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But not only creation, we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the spirits, groan inwardly that we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved." The hope of the new body is part of our salvation. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it patiently. And so we are waiting and eagerly longing for the hope of the Christian, to the hope of eternal life, yes, with the hope of this new heaven, this new earth, this new body altogether. 
And so we don't prioritize this life. We don't prioritize our comfort here. We don't prioritize our wealth, our possessions. All of that will fade, but eternity will last forever. The illustration I used last week applies here as well. You know, like going to college, you live in poverty sometimes, you struggle with a job, you struggle with studying. Why do you do it? The hope that after college, you'll be able to have a better life and a better living than you would have without college. But why do we struggle through this life? Why do we struggle to be holy? Why do we fight a war against sin? Why do we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil? Because we have this great hope of eternity, this great hope of a new heaven and new earth, this great hope in this passage of a new body, a holy, perfect body. Now, why can Paul say this? Well, we read the verse, right? He probably is the one who went up to heaven and saw things that he's not allowed to talk about. He may have seen glimpses of the new heaven and the new earth as John did. He may have seen our, what happens in our, with our bodies. God may have revealed these things to him to help strengthen him, not just so that he could live the life he had to live, which was harder than anyone else's, but so that he could write these things to share with us. And through his suffering, he brings all of these things out to us that we might know them as well. Paul is here speaking of the redemption of the body. In this hope, we were saved. That hope that is seen is not hope. We haven't seen it, but we hope for it. We, we have faith that it will come, having not seen it. And that is the hope of this new body which will replace this body that makes us groan. And then he goes on to finish this little section in verse 5 to say, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his Spirit as a guarantee. Our guarantee, what we understand the meaning of what a guarantee is here. It is not like a warranty that you hope they'll not find 27 ways to get around when you need to make a repair which is what usually happens. It's a guarantee that what God has said, God will do. We know the guarantee is sufficient because God has said it because he cannot lie. He does not break his word. He does everything that he says. His word is unbreakable and undeniable. So we know that this new body, this new heaven, this new earth, they belong to us. Paul says, when you heard... In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. This guarantee is a sealing with the Holy Spirit. Now, people sometimes get lost in what this is, but as we've been going through Second Corinthians, I'm sure you can figure it out for yourselves at this point. We covered this idea earlier in the book, and we've discussed it at least two or three times so far. The first place, that is, the place that is really strong is in chapter 3, verses 2 to two and 3, of, here in Second Corinthians. It says, You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all, as you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but in the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. They had the Holy Spirit within them, and the people were to know they had the Holy Spirit, could see they had the Holy Spirit in them because of the result it had on their heart. They had new lives that were being transformed more and more into the image of God. And so that when people, well, Paul administered to them and their lives are now transformed and they're not the people they used to be. They don't do the things they used to do. They don't believe the things they used to do. They've truly been transformed and not just superficially, but visibly from the heart. They're running this new life. They're running this new race set before them. They're, they're seeking and desiring to be holy. They're lamenting their sins and their stumblings. And everybody could see this and know that Paul's ministry was faithful and true. Well, this is also what's at mind here. This idea that if we've been, we belong to God, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in us. And as we read in uh, Ezekiel 36, you know, when he puts that new spirit in us, that heart of, takes out our heart of stone, puts in our heart of flesh, which gives us a new spirit, 
He causes us to walk in his ways. And so we have this guarantee. What is the guarantee he's talking about? We can look at our heart and see that it's not all us, that God did something. You know, people like me who were an atheist, it's very obvious. I was an atheist, I couldn't believe, and I said, how can you believe in someone you can't see, can't touch, can't talk to? How did I believe? I thought, wow. When I first believed, I, I, I sat up and said, i got to figure out how this is so I can write it down and tell everybody. And how did I? Well, I just knew in my heart. And from that day on, I was a very different person. Looking back on it and understanding of the Bible, I understand it wasn't me choosing to follow God and to believe in God, but it was God taking out that heart of stone, giving me a heart of flesh, and causing me then to be a new person and to live for him. And that is what he's been explaining to them in this book over and over again so far, helping them understand that if you have this transformation in your life, then you know that you are a child of God because you seek obedience and no longer disobedience. As John says in First John, but also we know that we have the Spirit in our heart that therefore the promises belong to us. And who is it that did this? Well, according to our passage today, God has prepared us for this very thing. God prepared us. God made the way. God took out that heart of flesh. As Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, John six forty four. You know, our hope in the resurrection of the resurrection body comes because God has made the way for us, and God has brought us there, sometimes kicking against the goads as Paul or you know, sitting in devout atheism <laughs> like me. God transforms the heart, and seeing that, we know we belong to him. And God has really prepared everything. I did not make my new heavenly body. I remember I've shared this before, that sculpture that's popular today. You can get a paperweight of it now of a man chiseling himself out of a block of stone, and the title is The Self-Made Man. Well, I am not a self-made man. I did not make this body, and I did not make the one to come, and I did not make my salvation. It's all the gift of God. That spiritual, purely honorable, imperishable, immortal, glorious body is something God has prepared for his people. The new heaven and the new earth also are things that are prepared by him. Remember when we read verse uh, Revelation 21, but think of Peter. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and all the works that are done it will be exposed. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. According to the promise, we are waiting for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Second Peter 3, 10-13. Now, as our passage today is telling us, along with those things comes this new glorified heavenly body, in which we will live. And so you don't need to worry about what man may do to this body. You don't need to worry about the ravages of age, the, the ravages of corruption from sickness, from the curse. We need to hope in what we have not seen in this new body that will come. And more than just hope, as we see in our passage today, we, we need to be longing for it. It needs to be what we desire. If our mind is set on the things above, that's where our treasure will be. If we keep our mind set on the things of this world, then we will treasure the things of the world and we won't be storing treasure in heaven. It needs to be our desire. This eternity prepared by God is amazing. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was reading Revelation. I thought, wow, the 24 elders and all the people in heaven just sit there all day worshiping God. And when the angels speak, they all bow down and worship God. That might be good for, you know, a few hundred years, but isn't that going to get boring after a billion years? 
And somebody pointed out to me, my pastor actually at the time, that God is infinite. And the treasure in his storehouse is infinite. Which means every day he can bring out new treasures, new glories, new wonders for us to marvel at. We don't have to worry about running out of things to read, running out of things, YouTube videos to see. Uh, I've seen everyone that guy posted. Now what? Bored. That's not going to be heaven. We'll have things to do for God's glory, and he will be with us as our God, and we'll be able to see him. And all the things that we need to do, and I'm hoping, personally, I'm hoping there's a Garden of Eden up there that I can do some gardening. I enjoy that. Uh, there may be other things to do, but there will be wonderful things to do for God and for his kingdom and for his glory forever. So that is what we hope for, what we long for as a believer. And that's why he's saying here, the last path, the last section we read, that we do not lose heart. And this is one of the reasons we do not lose heart. No matter what happens to this body, what, no matter what happens in this life, it's a brief and momentary time compared to eternity in my new body, in my new heaven, my new earth with my God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the many great and precious promises in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the hope of this one. Through perhaps foolishness and the curse and sin, the current bodies are wasting away or groaning with longing for something better, and you have promised us better. You have promised us perfect. You have promised us heavenly bodies that we will be in forever. Pray, Lord, that that promise and that hope would be our desire day and night, that we would be with you forever, that we would have this new incorruptible, immortal spiritual body, and that we might live our lives according to that hope, that hope in the coming of your Son, the hope in the judgments, the hope in eternity. Help us, Lord, to live our lives for those things that are real, not for the transient things of this life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.